You've got to believe that in what you're doing. And you've got to believe that no matter what, it's going to work out. Doesn't mean it's going to work out exactly as you planned. You've got to be adaptive, clearly. But if you don't have optimism as a foundational part of your way of being, you're never going to accomplish anything great, anything that someone else has not done before. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Today, Dan Doktoroff is the chairman and founder of Target ALS, a nonprofit medical research foundation focused on finding treatment for ALS, commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. He recently was diagnosed with ALS, and both his father and uncle passed from this awful disease. I know it well, as my grandfather had passed from ALS also. But Dan has an incredible business story also. We all realize that might not be as important as his main focus now, but he was previously New York City's longest-serving deputy mayor for economic development and rebuilding at a time when New York City was literally in shambles. The things he planned and developed completely turned the city around. After seeing what he accomplished, the former mayor, Michael Bloomberg, made him CEO and president of Bloomberg LP. He also had led NYC 2012, New York City's bid for the 2012 Summer Olympics. Although New York City didn't win the bid, it brought us things like a new Yankee Stadium, City Field for the Mets, and many other buildings that changed New York City for the better. Most recently, Dan founded Sidewalk Labs in 2015 a Google subsidiary which uses innovative technologies to improve urban infrastructure. On this episode of How Success Happens, I sat down with Dan to discuss his past in starting a well-known PE company, his involvement in NYC government, and most importantly to me and to many, his work with Target ALS. For someone who has been as instrumental as anyone in the development of New York City, I started out by asking Dan how he grew up in Michigan and what led him to New York. Well, I think growing up in Michigan didn't have a lot to do with what I eventually did. I grew up in a nice suburb of Detroit, had lots of good friends, still do, in fact, going to Michigan tomorrow for a high school reunion. But I would not say that it had a significant impact on sort of my life. In fact, I would not have described myself as particularly ambitious growing up or, to be honest, most of the way through college. (laughs) I, I was always the type of kid who aimed for the lowest grades I could get to achieve the objective. And if they could be combined with very low scores on effort, that was even better. So I'll actually tell you a funny story. When I was in high school, um, we had a very crude computer system that could only print out 
A's and B's, no pluses and minuses. So my goal was always to get, and we had six reporting periods, and then a final exam was to get four A minuses and three B pluses. And that was an A. (laughs) (laughs) So I ended up finishing like group six out of 732 kids, but with the lowest A possible. So in any event, I did go to Harvard. I got into Harvard and I was incredibly insecure. Harvard's a kind of place where you have to be confident in yourself in at least academically, extracurricularly, or socially. And I was just like a good generalist. And so over time, over the four years of college, I gained a lot more confidence just as I realized, hey, you know what, I actually belong here. So by the time I left, I was a bit more ambitious, but still not clear on what I wanted to do. I ended up going to law school because my dad was a lawyer and then became a judge. And about midway through law school, I was working at a, as a summer associate at a law firm. And I got exposed to the biggest takeover of all time. And I was in a partner's desk at a partner's office at like midnight. And he handed me a book from Goldman Sachs. I never even heard of an investment bank. <laughs> And it was like filled with numbers. It was a valuation. And it was filled with numbers. I said, this is more interesting than what I'm doing. And as it turns out, my wife ended up taking a job in New York. So I followed her to New York. I never wanted to come to New York. I hated New York. (laughs) And I didn't want to work for a law firm in New York. So I interviewed for jobs in investment banking. And this was at a time when they weren't really hiring a lot of lawyers to be investment bankers. And I faked my way into a job, but I faked my way into a job. And fortunately, it clicked for me. What I did realize in law school, though, just being perfectly honest, is that what I wanted to do is make as much money as quickly as possible and then have the flexibility to do what I wanted to do which I didn't know what it was. And I I went from investment banking three years and then helped to form a partnership that became Oak Hill Partners that I eventually ran. That was a combination private equity and investing in securities of leveraged companies. Sure. And it worked out really well. And I started thinking about what else I wanted to do. So the bridge ultimately to like going into government and really the rest of my career was when I sat in a stadium and a World Cup semifinal match in 1994. Oh, yeah. Thought it was like the most exciting event I'd ever been to, despite the fact that I hated soccer and didn't care about either <laughs> of the two teams who were Italy and Bulgaria. And yet I thought to myself, standing there, you couldn't even sit down. Why has New York, the most international city in the world, not hosted the most international event, the Olympics? And so I left the stadium that day with this notion that New York ought to host the Olympics. And I spent about a year and a half researching the Olympics, their effect on host cities, how to win, et cetera, and concluded that New York ought to host the Olympics. And that became sort of the path for me into government, into running Bloomberg, ultimately 
to sidewalk labs and all the other stuff that I've done since. But buying that flexibility was sort of a key thing for me. Well, I have to personally then thank your wife for getting you here to New York because, and we'll talk about some of those things that you did working with Bloomberg and of course, prior to that with trying to bring the Olympics here to the United States. But when you do look back your time growing up, were there any, and (laughs) growing up, I was laughing at, it was exactly like me. Unfortunately, I didn't end up going to Harvard, but it was the minimum amount of work that I could get by and do and then be okay. And, but in terms of your parents or siblings or Was there, you know, maybe even it came out later on where you realized there was a motivation that came from that upbringing? Yeah, I'll get kind of personal here. When I turned 60 and I knew that there was sort of the specter of ALS hanging over my head, I guess we'll talk about that, which we unfortunately share in our families. I decided that I was very concerned about time and what to do with time. And so for the first time in my life, I actually went to see a therapist to discover how am I going to deal with time? And over the course of our discussions, we started talking about ambition. And I began to recall conversations between my mom and my dad where that I'd completely repressed, Mm. where I remembered my mom being kind of disappointed in my dad for not being more ambitious. By by any stretch of the imagination, my dad was successful, (laughs) that he was a successful lawyer. He became the chief judge of the Michigan Court of Appeals. But I started to remember these conversations, and I basically concluded that I became ambitious as a way not to disappoint my mother, the way I thought my dad had disappointed my mother. And it was just this thing that ultimately was probably driving me. I was always, by the way, even though in school I did the minimum to achieve the maximum, at work I never did that. I was always like, if I had a job cutting grass, I would do it perfectly. If I was a waiter, I would be the best waiter in the place. If I worked for a professor in college doing research, I would work like a maniac. So work was always different. So it's these little things sometimes that you don't even realize have this incredible impact on you. So, you know, by the way, I'm not now 64 years old and I'm saying, why am I still trying to impress my mom? But whatever. Yeah, no, I don't I don't think it goes away. I forgot who I was talking to similarly the other day, a big entrepreneur who said it, it's all he still hears the voice of his mom and I guess she was with him and he never wanted to disappoint her and she thought he could be more ambitious. This guy has a runs a public company and and it was so interesting just to think and that he's tried to quiet it but it comes out, which thank you for sharing that with us. And I do want to ask you, so you're sitting in that stadium, you're watching a soccer match with most of us in 94 when it was here, weren't, weren't really 
super big soccer fans. They were launching MLS, but you said we have to, we should have an event like this, especially with New York. What did you do at that point? And how did you go about putting together a team and really putting your time into this? So it was all after hours, you know, I was still running a private equity. Right. And I just got obsessed with the idea. And the more I learned, the more convinced I was that it was a great idea. And the insight that I had was that I looked at other host cities and some had done it successfully. Others had not been so successful. But the ones who were more successful viewed the Olympics as sort of a catalyst to doing things that they otherwise didn't have the political will or financial wherewithal to get done. So it was a real using the deadlines that the Olympics created. It was a real catalyst to changing the face of the city. And New York had been through, you know, like three decades of not doing big things in this city. You know, most of the city was still zoned as if it was like a manufacturing town, which it was after World War II. So now I didn't know that much about the city, but I recruited people to help me understand and begin to build a concept for a plan. A friend of mine suggested that I read a book by a professor at Yale, which I did. And I recruited him on the team. He was also a member of the city planning commission. And he was really instrumental in terms of thinking about how he could actually use the Olympics as a catalyst. His name was Alex Garvin. He just passed away a few months ago. But then over time, I recruited other really good people. And I learned a lot along the way. So by the time I entered government, which was five years after I'd first raised the issue of bringing the Olympics to New York publicly, yeah, I knew a lot about the city. I love it. And and as I talked, I know how close we came as a city, thanks to your efforts and the others on your team. And as I mentioned, as a diehard Jets fan, that centerpiece stadium to this day, every time I have to drive out to the Meadowlands, it kills me to think what that would have yeah, yeah. been like on a Sunday and what it would have meant to the city. But I want you to talk about what made you join Bloomberg? You had been a finance investment guy. Obviously, you had done this, but you put a lot of time and effort into this. And then it seemingly something clicked. You must have wanted to be in government. But what happened? Yeah, I really didn't want to be in government. In fact, when Mike called, and I knew him vaguely, you know, he'd given some money to the Olympic bid. He was technically on our board, never showed up to a meeting. <laughs> I know um, those guys. I, I knew him a little bit. And I said no two times because one, I had my private equity firm. I had the Olympic bid going on. My father was sick with ALS. And I thought I really needed to focus on those things. And he made a point. He said, look, you've built this plan. I mean, we had plans for all over New York. You built this plan. Why wouldn't you want to execute them from within government? You can have control of the execution of these plans 
And by the way, you can still oversee the Olympic bid. You should talk to your father about what he thinks about this. And it's Mike saying that. But he immediately sort of convinced me once we finally sat down. But it wasn't like a real desire for me to go into government making a dollar a year. Per right. six. That was your salary. But it was once he said that, you know, at the end of the day, you can have great ideas. But you got to execute on them. And the ability to execute was just too compelling to turn down. And is that using, we use the Olympic, once I got into government, we use the Olympic deadlines for just bidding on the Olympics to get all sorts of things done, including Hudson Yards broadly, the High Line, Yankee Stadium, City Field, the Atlantic Yards, or, you know, the Barclays sure. Center. The area around it, the waterfront in Brooklyn and Queens, Governor's Island, which we'd identified as a site as we then end up using as part of our Olympic plan, Brooklyn Bridge Park. And then I had other responsibilities as well. But the Olympics actually were this huge catalyst to getting things done. So from that perspective, it worked exactly as sort of that insight I had was intended. Yeah, it's incredible. More from our guests, but first, a word from our sponsors. Are you a small business owner? Did you know that Visa's online small business hub has tools, discounts, and resources to help you run your business? So whether you're a business beginner or an entrepreneurial expert, find the solutions, tools, and tips you need to help take your business to the next level. Plus, if you have a Visa business credit or debit card, you can get access to cardholder benefits like Visa Savings Edge, a savings program which can help you save on everyday business expenses like office essentials, travel, and more. When you enroll your Visa business card in Visa Savings Edge, you'll have access to valuable offers which can help turn qualifying business purchases made with your enrolled Visa business card into savings for your business. Learn more at visa.com slash small business hub. Once again, that's visa.com slash small business hub. Visa, a network working for everyone. And our next sponsor. As business leaders, our time is pulled in a lot of different directions. Maybe it's managing emails or organizing your calendar or even following up on projects. Saying no to those tasks could help you actually reclaim an average of 15 hours every week to say yes to the things you love. It's time to focus on your strengths and delegate your weaknesses. Belay has been helping busy leaders with their staffing solutions for over a decade. Belay intentionally pairs clients with virtual assistants, accounting, and more. Great leaders don't do anything alone. Find the support you need to delegate the details with Belay. Get the right help now with a virtual assistant from Belay. Text HSH to 55123 to get $300 off your startup fee for a virtual assistance when you schedule a call before August 31st. That's HSH to 55123 to save $300 and reclaim 15 hours every week. And we're back. I've been a, a lifelong New Yorker. And to remember what it was like, even going into the the back into the 90s. And when you 
took over and I never knew really how much it was a catalyst. But when I look at New York City now, you know, and after 9-11 thinking, oh, Battery Park will never recover and seeing what it's like today and the High Line and, and how popular Brooklyn is and just all of these things, Hudson Yards and, and Yankee Stadium, City Field. I mean, it really is incredible during that time what you and really you and the Bloomberg administration laid forward into the city we're living in right now. It's absolutely incredible. I know people talk about Robert Moses and, and, and obviously in another light, but like when you think about it, did you, do you ever think now, like when you're walking down the street here in the city or like, wow, like look at this city you know, now? Yes, I do. It was literally no block that I can walk down where there's something that I didn't impact in some way. And by the way, some of it was stuff I did after I left. I was part of the group that sort of rescued City Bike from uh, financial ruin. So I do take great pride in what we did. And it wasn't just me. I led a great team. And by the way, beyond leading a great team, I was led by a great mayor who on day one, when we first had that meeting, said, look, I'm going to give you lots of autonomy. We need to be in sync strategically, but I will support you. And he did, Mike Bloomberg did, just completely fulfill every promise that he made to me. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, we let this stadium effort got incredibly controversial just as he was gearing up to run for re-election. And Madison Square Garden was against it. They spent $50 million to defeat it. And you could just watch his poll numbers dropping like a rock. And we ended up losing because of a corrupt speaker of yep. the uh, state assembly. Yep. We ended up losing the stadium literally because of one person. And the only thing Mike said to me, didn't get mad at me. He, despite the fact that I had jeopardized his political fortunes, he just said, what's plan B? By the way, I didn't have one. But six <laughs> days later, six days later, we entered into deals to allow the Olympic bid to continue for new stadiums for the Mets and the Yankees. Six days later. So, and, you know, people realized that he was, you know, got knocked around like everybody and got up and moved forward. And yes. that's, that's what New York is. Yeah. You know, we always, we get knocked around. It's tough in this city. You know, look at since 9-11, we've had 9-11, we had the financial crisis, we had Superstorm Sandy, we've got COVID. We always get up. Because we are a town of optimists, you know, people who've come from other places or from around the country and around the world, the act of immigration is an act of optimism. And that's why we always bounce back. Yeah, it seems like optimism for you has always been kind of your mindset. And I think for all entrepreneurs, especially the ones we have tons listening, want to be entrepreneurs, myself. I'm the same, similar, I try to be. How important has that attitude of being optimistic been for you? It's the key to everything, I think. You know, you got to be to some extent realistic, but 
you got to believe that in what you're doing. And you got to believe that no matter what, it's going to work out. Doesn't mean it's going to work out exactly as you planned. You got to be adaptive, clearly. But, you know, if you don't have optimism as a foundational part of your way of being, you're never going to accomplish anything great, anything that someone else has not done before. And look, I'm dealing with ALS now. I think the way I've responded to it, which is I've been really happy, strangely, is in large part due to the fact that I'm optimistic. And it's not like I feel there's going to be a cure to this or anything, but I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And what happens will happen. I'm going to try and affect the outcome, but I'm looking on the bright side of everything. No, that's great. And, you know, I I want to talk about ALS and you started an organization years ago because you've had family members, I believe your father, your uncle passed from ALS. Now talking about yourself with ALS it's a horrible disease in in so many ways. People know it as Lou Gehrig's disease, but for you and knowing that it's within your family and history, can you just give an explanation for those who don't really understand what ALS is? Yeah. So uh, in ALS, there are cells in the brain called motor neurons that send basically signals the muscles to move. In ALS, for a variety of reasons, those motor neurons die and those signals can't be sent. And therefore, the muscles don't move. And this occurs progressively. So what happens with ALS patients is they become paralyzed, essentially. What eventually kills them is they can't breathe right? The respiratory function doesn't work. But it's a, it's a horrible disease. You know, I've said I, I've watched my father die of it. No. I know you had your grandfather die of it. And there's others in your family who've been affected by it as well. My uncle died of it. My college roommate actually died of it. My office mate at Lehman Brothers hmm. died of it as well. And so I've had a lot of exposure to the disease. After my uncle died in 2010, my dad died in 2002, I realized this is hereditary in my family. And I had to do something, not just for my family, but literally one in 400 people who are alive today will die of the disease. So I looked around and began to understand that there had been almost no progress on the disease in the 140 years since it had been discovered. And I tried to understand why and did a lot of homework. I brought on scientific advisors to help me understand. And we decided to create an organization that would address some of the core issues in terms of why there had been so little progress. So I created something called Target ALS. And what we, our mission is, is to accelerate research into successful clinical trials. And we've been around for about 10 years. And we do a few things. One is we fund a consortia of researchers, often led by biotech or pharma companies, around very hard problems in ALS. 
again, with the goal of practical, druggable solutions. So we've now, I think, funded 41 consortia, and 25 of them have led to continuing drug discovery programs by biotech or pharma companies. Awesome. The second thing is important to do is draw more people into ALS research. But in order to do that, they have to have the tools and scientific resources. So we've created eight what we call core scientific resources, um, things like animal models and biofluid samples and stem cells and other things that any researcher anywhere in the world can gain access to. And all they have to do is pay handling cost. And those have been used hundreds and hundreds of times on various projects throughout the world. A third thing we do is we believe at the end of the day, if you want to save people's lives, they got to be drugs. And the drugs have to be made by biotech and pharma companies. So we engage them in everything we do. They're on our board. They're on our independent review committee. As I mentioned, they lead uh, many of our consortia. When we had our first annual meeting in 2013, we had eight biotech, pharma, or venture capital firms in attendance. Today, this year, when we had our annual meeting, 123 of them. So there's huge interest. And our goal, we think, is to get them involved. And they're actively involved in the disease. So that means that there's been a lot of scientific progress. I'm proud of the fact that we played a role in catalyzing that. But nobody's life has been saved yet. And we got to accelerate it even more. So what I have decided to do is when I was diagnosed late last year, I stepped away from the company I'd founded with Google, stepped back from leading the cultural institution, the shed that I had founded, and decided to really focus my efforts on scaling up target ALS. And my goal is over a year to raise $250 million and dramatically accelerate the progress that we've made that's, and the field it's making. That's, so that's how I'm spending most of my time. Well, obviously love to hear that, how you're spending your time, certainly being a part of the New York chapter here of ALS and family members and being on the board and knowing what you're doing on the research and like you said, and involving the biotechs and the pharmaceuticals, because that's the only way anything will get done. It's really refreshing to hear. And for you personally, being a ambitious go-getter, I mean, just incredibly successful throughout your career. When you got that news and heard that news and just thinking about life in general and all you've accomplished and what you want to do now going forward, what was that feeling like at that time? Look, it was obviously something I really didn't expect, even though it was always sort of a specter out there. So yeah, it was kind of a shock. But I'll, I'll say something that may be hard to believe. In the entire time since this process began last fall, I probably had one hour where I've been down awesome. cumulatively. 
And I, I struggle to explain that. I have many hypotheses about why that's true. But I do think it comes back in part to something we've already discussed, which is, you know, I'm an optimistic person and I look on the bright side of things. But there's also something that was very interesting that happened to me that I didn't try to have happen to me was subconscious, maybe a defense mechanism kicking in. But I stopped really thinking about the future. I've always been like this schemer and plotter about the future. I actually never really enjoyed achievements because I was always on to the next thing. And now I am just like focused in the present all the time and not thinking about the future, particularly not thinking about the course of the disease or its implications. And it's been a real godsend for me. You know, I think there's other reasons why I feel the way I do. I'm grateful for the life I've had. I feel like with Target ALS, I have a mission or a real sense of purpose. You know, by backing away from the intense pressure I was always under, I have more time. I think I've become more patient, something no one ever would have done <laughs> me before. I think more present. Um, I think a little kinder, actually. I think I've become kind of a nicer person. So I feel in some ways like I'm living a life of fun and purpose in the present. And that's kind of what life should be like. Yeah, I would say for me and many, I think that really is the goal. Uh, I'm very similar in the way I am and thinking ahead and just never enjoying the moment and understanding like what you're talking about now and being there, being present with your family and just being able to live that life is a blessing in a way. I also know from years of being involved, the our, our New York chapter here that it's a lot of work to do and it's hard to put to the side, but I'm, I'm so grateful for Target ALS and, and knowing you're on our side and, and just continuing to fight it is really a blessing for everyone who has the disease or who might have the disease one day. So I really appreciate that. want to thank you uh, for your work there. And, and also as a New Yorker, thank you for your work there. And uh, I know you had the stadium done and I know the whole story, but what, as we talked about, uh, but um, you've done incredible things in your life and you deserve now to enjoy and walk down the street and see your accomplishments. Well, I have one mission left and that is to find real treatments for ALS and whether it's for me, my family, or those one in 400 people, yeah. you know, who are going to die if we don't yeah. find treatments for them. That's really the mission I got left. Yeah. And I'm privileged to be able to be in a position to do that. Yeah. Well, thank you. And horrible disease, saddened that you have it, grateful that if it's anyone to be involved and to help fight the battle that it's you. So thanks again, Dan, for coming on. You've certainly been someone who's had incredible success and, and I really hope, uh, 
you know, this effort would target ALS and research and finding drugs that could help even save, extend lives works out, which I know it will. We will get there. I have no doubt about that. No. So thanks so much for having me. You got it. Thanks, Dan. All right. Thanks. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.